Welcome, Lindsay. I am so happy and honored to have you with us on the podcast today. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you for having me, Monique. Yeah, this is a this is a conversation I I don't take lightly because I know it's the experience of so many people, and uh, I really I really try to think about okay, what are some of the questions that will be most helpful to the audience? And um, so, just to start. I'm we're, I'm talking with psychologist um, Dr. Lindsay G. Gibson, author of Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. And I have to say, when I when I saw the title of the book before I read it, I thought, well, she's not going to say anything I don't already know. <laughs> Sorry, just because you know I grew up like many people with an emotionally immature parent. But as I read your book, the way that you have talked about it, validated. Uh, it just really helped me to understand even on a deeper level uh, about the experience. And I have recommended your book to so many people. Usually when someone asks me for a reference for a book, that's usually one of the first ones that I will recommend. Um, so yes. So I wanted to start with with at the very beginning, because Although many of us who've had the experience of having an emotionally immature parent, we we may not really understand the definition totally. You know, we may sense that something is kind of missing. They don't really get it. Um, they don't understand. No empathy, no connection. Would you be able to help us understand by sort of defining for us what what is an emotionally immature parent? Sure. Um, the first thing I, I think it's important to realize is that, you know, our development proceeds along multiple strands at the same time. Uh, so, it, so our development is not a monolithic thing that starts here and moves steadily through. It's like your intellectual development can develop just fine. You can be intellectually mature if you're emotionally immature. Uh, your social skills can develop just fine. You can be popular. You can be at the center of your social group. You can be a leader, all right? Uh, you can have charisma and you can be emotionally immature. So to think about, uh, oh, and also <clears throat> you could be a, a, a success. You could be a success in business. You could be a success in academia. Whatever it is that, that is your skill set for an occupation could also have developed along very mature lines. So you get like intellectual, social, and, and uh, career development that look completely adult. And then at home or in their intimate relationships, you can see that their development has been arrested. It's stopped at a certain point. And they don't have the same emotional maturity as a person whose lines of development were in sync and continued into adulthood. So that's a confusing thing that I, I wanted to kind of specify first, Monique, because People will say, well, my, you know, my dad owns his own company or my mom is, you know, like she's in, at the head of the, you know, PTA or those or whatever social group it is. Everyone thinks she's the most wonderful person ever. 
And so this is not computing <laughs> to think of them as emotionally immature. But when you get that idea that you can lose momentum in a certain line of development and have trouble with that, and that it won't show up kind of like unless it's behind closed doors in a way, like within the family, within the relationship. Otherwise, they may look great. So to explain what an emotionally immature person is like and what it is that didn't keep up in that strand of their development, we'd first want to realize that they're very egocentric. They're self-preoccupied. They're um, self-absorbed in the sense that all roads lead to Rome. Like it's, it's everything is about me and how it affects me. They are at the center of the circle <laughs> and they have a really hard time imagining that other people have their own subjective experience, like that other people have an inner world with thoughts and feelings and that these other people are psychologically real and they're internally motivated. That's something that they don't get to they tend to see other people more in terms of how they are in relationship to them, whether they're frustrating them or they're uh, gratifying them. It's all about me. And then you can imagine <clears throat> with that viewpoint that they become very lacking or that they are very lacking in empathy. Because in order to have good empathy, you've got to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the other person and not only imagine, but sort of feel your way into their experience, right? So when you can't do that because everything is centering in on yourself, you don't understand that other people may have certain reactions to you. And without that empathy, you are unable to repair the little, um, you know, little things that go wrong daily in any kind of relationship. Instead, instead of um, apologizing or um, letting you know that they understand how they affected you, they're far more likely to double down, restate their position and tell you why you're wrong. So even their ability to repair their missteps in relationships uh, is really impaired. And then we have their trouble with self-reflection. Uh, they just don't look at themselves as a factor in, in the equation of relationships. So if something goes wrong between them and another person, they're not likely to say to themselves, gee, you know, I, I wonder if it was something that I did. Like, did I have a part in this? Was, is there something I'm not aware of that I'm doing? They would never ask themselves that question because they tend to be pretty on the surface. So if it looks like that to them, that's what it is. And also that affects their ability to change. Because if you don't self-reflect, there's no basis for you to initiate a process of changing your behavior or your thoughts or your ideas. And then finally, 
um, their relationship to reality is not great. Um, and what I mean by that is that they tend to believe that reality is what they feel it is. In other words, if you tell me <clears throat> that you don't want me to come in your house without knocking first, and I feel rejected because I'm your mother and I always walk in your house whenever I want to, and I feel like I'm being rejected and abandoned and disrespected, well, that's what's happening. I don't see it that you're making a request or setting a you know reasonable boundary. In my reality, you have abandoned me and you have rejected me as a person, lock, stock, and barrel. So their feelings govern their view of reality. Now, because they have kind of a low stress tolerance, uh, this is immaturity in general. You know, little people have very low stress tolerance. <laughs> Anybody who's raised a child knows, knows this stage. Um, it lasts a long time. But um, they also restructure reality in their own mind to make it easier to deal with. So they will dismiss deny, distort what happened in order to make it into something that's more manageable and face-saving for them. So that's a, that's a two-minute mile, <laughs> a little tour through emotional immaturity, but that, that's the overview. Yeah. And if I had a checklist, I'm like, check, 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 <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Wow. So uh, the first thing that I really want to ask your opinion on, because I think that this is a question I know I had, and that is, is this something that they don't have the capacity? Does that mean that it's something that was not developed, so they just don't have it? They weren't, I don't want to say born with it, but it's not there. It's just not there. They're without it. That's a great question. Um, and I don't know if anybody has the answer to these kinds of uh, nature, nurture um, uh, questions because you know we just can't do experiments on it to prove it one way or the other. But I suspect that something has gone wrong for them in their early life, uh, especially around their connection with a caretaker. And I think that the opportunities for learning how to repair that, you know, in an ongoing relationship, we, you know, we're, we're sometimes we're mismatched with each other. We, we don't jive, we don't understand each other, but there's something about emotionally immature people that suggests that they are much more likely to have more of those misunderstandings with people and then less of an ability to work it out with them. So, you know, did that occur very early in their childhood? Very possibly, since a lot of uh, those kind of subliminal interpersonal behaviors get laid down at that point. Uh, does that mean that they can never change? No, I think that they can change. But 
Unfortunately, their lack of empathy, well, I should say their limited empathy, they, when they're relaxed and they're, you know, in good spirits, mm-hmm. they can be empathetic, but their lack of um, adequate empathy and their refusal um, to entertain self-reflection <clears throat> means that they don't have these twin uh, engines, so to speak, that are needed to repair relationships with people and to change their own experiences, to question and, and their experiences and grow from that. So unfortunately, there are a couple of characteristics that tend to keep them stuck. But once in a while, I think, um, people do get the message finally, and then they are willing to self-reflect because the cost of their automatic, um, reflexive behavior has been so high that now they're facing a loss that they would do anything to try to reverse. And that's, you know, sometimes when you have an estrangement, Um, or your child won't talk to you kind of thing. Uh, That's when sometimes parents are willing to reach out and say, uh, I I don't understand what happened. What, what can we do about this? And, you know, and to me, that says that some people can change, but as a group, I would say that their personality characteristics kind of work against that most of the time. I guess we we may not have like an answer. We could have our, you know, suspicions or ideas and and like you said, maybe in some cases, but I just think, and maybe again, this is my own experience from maybe dealing with people like that. I tend to feel more comfortable knowing because, you know, that that they just may not be they just it just isn't there. Mm-hmm. And when you there's almost when you know that it's just not there there's a a way that perhaps you can accept that not saying you like it or you don't want it different but that it's not there therefore you can't expect it to change otherwise you might keep trying and trying and trying and trying and not see any changes um so yeah, that's kind of what I think. Yeah, I agree with you because mm-hmm. what you're talking about is is getting to a point where you can enter a state of acceptance um, that you have thoroughly tried it out, yeah. <laughs> given mm-hmm. it your best shot and nothing's happening or it's mm-hmm. getting worse. Um, so I think that people do reach a point where they accept for themselves that you know, and not only did I try in the past, but I have tried knowing what their limitations are now. Um, I've tried to reach them the best way I know how, mm-hmm. but I'm not getting anywhere. And to reach a state of acceptance that they probably are not going to change, mm-hmm. it does give you that freedom to find other ways of relating to them uh, so that you're not beating your head against a brick wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
So maybe we could now, um, we talked a little bit about um, what an immature parent can look like. And maybe you can talk a bit about when this does happen for children, what, what kind of responses do children have growing up when they have this kind of response to a parent? I know you mentioned like there's a loneliness that that's internal. Um, maybe you can talk about kind of what the experience is like for the child and maybe how it can show up later on in life for the child that becomes an adult. Yeah, um, that emotional loneliness that you referenced is something that adult children of emotionally immature parents frequently experience and have no idea <laughs> where it comes from or mm -hmm. what it's about because you know they're like fish in water they grew yeah. up in the water uh that's all they know um it wouldn't occur to them that there was something missing in the water mm -hmm. because this is what they've lived with oh. so when you don't have sufficient uh connection with your your caretaker your loved ones you feel the lack of connection, just like you would feel the lack of an essential vitamin or mineral mm -hmm. in your body, mm -hmm. okay? We're made <clears throat> to need certain things to be in optimal health. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing for our emotional and mental health. So there's no getting around that. If you didn't get it, you're gonna get a signal from your body, your heart, your soul, whatever you wanna call it, that will say, I'm lonely, mm -hmm. I'm missing someone or I'm missing something that I, that I desperately need in order to feel whole and safe, okay? So <clears throat> that's the most striking absence that, that people can feel and yeah. that people identify with immediately when you start talking about it. They know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, they've felt like they were on their own. Another thing, though, is that they grow up with people who, as I mentioned before, are just not interested in their inner worlds. In fact, uh, one of the, the chapter titles of my second book uh, says something like, they are hostile to your inner world. <laughs> and the editor said, uh, Lindsay, are you sure you want to use that word hostile? Like, maybe we want to say unreceptive or... <laughs> It's like, nope, that word's going to <laughs> because it is, it is hostile because when you bring out how you're feeling and thinking, and if it doesn't mirror them or what they're expecting from you, they do get hostile. They want you to change. They don't want that to be a part of your inner experience because it messes up their sense of security. So that hostility towards your inner world tells you that there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with the way you think, or there's something wrong with the way you feel, or maybe you're just selfish, or maybe you're crazy. Uh, and, and this kind of distortion of your motive and, um, you know, your essential personality really makes you wonder if it's safe to let other people get to know you at a very deep level because the people that knew you the very best 
acted like something was wrong with you when you got too close to them, uh, when you showed too much of yourself. Oh, and Monique, I want to mention too, I forgot to say this earlier, that another characteristic of emotionally mature people is their difficulty with emotional intimacy. And what that means is that if, if I wanted to get close to you, I might tell you something about how I really feel or what I really think to allow you to get to know me, okay? And then hopefully, if you're interested in getting to know me, you might reflect on that, say something back, be reciprocal. And then you might share something with me about you, okay? Mm -hmm. That you had a similar experience or maybe you understand what I'm talking about because this thing happened to you. Now I know you a little bit better. And I reflect to you what that experience must have been like for you. And then we, you know, and it gets, it gets um, to the point where we know each other now at a deeper level and it feels good. It feels so good. <laughs> so safe. Um, yeah. It's energizing. It mm. increases you. Mm -hmm. you know, totally. I'm listening to you and I'm feeling it. And it's just the most delicious feeling. Yeah. Yeah, and we're made for that. Yes, I mean, we are made for that delicious feeling. It's, mm. a, it's a true pleasure to mm. be able to get close to people like that. But for some reason, the emotionally immature person gets very tense when you try to connect at an emotionally intimate level. They don't want to do that. There, it frightens them. Uh, they can get very defensive, and they can move into a position where they actually, you know, push you back um, to get things at a distance that feels more comfortable to them. Mm -hmm. So if you go through your childhood with someone who is, you know, who gets uncomfortable when you're too exuberant with your mm -hmm. love mm -hmm. or you're too affectionate or you uh, talk about your, your deepest dreams and, and thoughts and someone, you know, begins to, to get tense and and sort of move back from you or look at you like there's something the matter with you, you learn, ooh, I better not show this to people, okay? I, I don't know what I did wrong, but this doesn't fly very well. And so when they grow up, they may approach uh, potential mates or good friends with this expectation that if anybody gets to know me really mm -hmm. well, they're going to ultimately pull back and sort of say, I don't know what you're talking about. <clears throat> I've never felt that way. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know what's the matter with you, but, um, mm. <laughs> and you feel, you would feel judged. So people grow up and they're afraid to let other people get to know them at a deep level, not socially, not even at a friend level, but at, a, at that deep best friend, mate level, mm -hmm. they can be very nervous about opening themselves up to that. And they, um, they tend to believe that what is going on inside them isn't interesting to other people, really shouldn't be brought up unless you absolutely, absolutely have to. And they expect that other people are going to you know, maybe you want to listen for two minutes and then that's it. Um, so they will cut their 
uh, communication short mm -hmm. in order not to alienate people. So there's a whole spectrum of behaviors where in adulthood, they're still acting like they're surrounded by impatient, disinterested, uh, mm -hmm. reactive, emotionally immature people, even if they're not. And that yeah. can really, you know, uh, have an effect, a uh, chilling effect on their ability to have deep relationships. Yeah. As you were speaking about how it affects um you know, your relationships later, I suddenly was thinking back to, to the child. And I was wondering if you could go back into, it was something that I was reading in your book about how, so how in the relationship with the, the immature parent, how that child relate, how the child has to hold back the things that you were just talking about, their, their real true feelings or their, you know, their character and, and maybe conform to what the, um the parent wants or needs can you talk about that about how then your focus becomes more about okay what they need yeah well somebody's you know in order to have a relationship somebody's got to be looking out for what's happening between the two people you know i mean otherwise i guess it would just completely drift apart and mm -hmm. a child cannot afford to let that happen. So, you know, in those early baby experiments, I don't know if you've ever seen them on YouTube, but mm -hmm. uh, researcher Ed Tronic has a YouTube about the still face experiment. Have you seen those? Yes, I have. And so he proved that <clears throat> the baby is an active participant in trying to re-engage the mother when they're not getting a response that they need. And that this back and forth is absolutely essential for the baby to develop a sense of closeness and trust. Mm -hmm. So even at, at the early age of like 11 months or mm -hmm. uh, you know 14 yeah. months, these little babies were trying their darndest, all their tricks, you know, to get mommy to re-engage and stop that still face, that, that flat expression mm -hmm. and re-engage with them. So children continue to do that. And we all continue to do that. We all try to engage with people um, with a number of, of different, you know, that more or less skillful <laughs> ways of, of getting people to respond to us. So the children of these emotionally immature parents learn that the name of the game is to help mommy or daddy stay emotionally calm and stable yeah. and keep their self-esteem in good shape. Mm -hmm. So act in ways that, that make them feel like they're emotionally stable. They don't have anything to worry about and they are uh, good people. They are admirable people. Their self-esteem is good. And that's the job that the children of these people take on in order to have the best chance of getting as much response to them as they can. Because if the emotionally immature person gets at all stressed, remember I said their stress tolerance isn't great. Mm -hmm. If they get at all stressed, they kind of you know, constrict inside 
they become very wary, um, very, um, well, some of them go all the way to suspicious, but even before that, they just become on guard. Uh, they pull away, they pull in, and they are on the lookout, uh, kind of vigilant about, you know, what's going to happen next. That is not exactly what we associate with good mothering, right? Or good caretaking. Uh, you know, a tense, wary, vigilant, uh, stiff <laughs> mm -hmm. parent is not going to reassure that child's sense of safety mm -hmm. and attachment and connection. So the child learns, don't do anything mm. to be stressful. Right. Because when they're relaxed enough, yeah. they are much better parents. Mm-hmm. You know, they can be responsive. They can be funny. They can do things with their children that are enjoyable. It's just that they are so quickly and easily sent into that, that defensive position. Yeah. And the child just learns uh, not to not to stir that up. Yeah, right. Exactly. Amazing. Uh, the way that you describe that. And I think many people can can relate to that. And it, would you say that that's sort of the fawn response? You know, um, people pleasing my mom or dad, so that I can keep them in a happy, calm, relatable, safe place. So yeah, I could be safe. Absolutely. That's that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Okay. So um, <clears throat> it seems like in a way that's that's a little bit also becoming a parentified child because you're trying to manage their emotional responses. Um, yeah. And also maybe you can talk a bit about a parentified child. I would imagine that also must come to play a lot in these kinds of um, relationships with emotionally immature parents. Yeah, it, it does. Um, because again, uh, in order for the child to get what they need, there has to be a relationship, there has to be a connection. Mm -hmm. And because the child is the one with the least power in the relationship, it kind of falls to them to be the ones to come up with a way to keep that connection as uh, positive and uh, sound as possible. So yeah, they, they very much become alert and vigilant in return to their parents' well-being, to their parents' mood. I mean, they pick up on the smallest micro expressions, okay? Mm -hmm. the, the little stiffening that happens, um, the, the very subtle changes in body language, the tone of voice. We, I mean, we're all made to pick up on this stuff. I mean, that's neurological. It's not something that we even have to learn. We can tell just like animals can tell. Mm. But the parentified child uses that information to then do something to help calm the situation down or divert the parent or um, distract the parent or soothe the parent, whatever you know they're particularly good at that mm -hmm. child, they will use that to see if they can get things more back on an even keel. Mm -hmm. 
But the parentification of that reversal of roles is very hard on the child because the child is, is nowhere near capable of actually doing that. So mm -hmm. what happens is that the child has to increasingly depend on their own mental functioning, their own intellect to reason out what they should do and be two steps ahead of the game and be wise beyond their years. You know, a lot of times people will call these children old souls or, you know, that that's a wise kid. And I always think with that, why did that kid have to be so wise? Mm. You know, what is it that's old mm -hmm. about this kid? Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is that they have prematurely moved up into their analytical minds mm -hmm. and kind of stretched that mental development to its highest, uttermost level. Mm -hmm. Feel the tension, you know, like it's a stretch to get up there, to think like that. You're going beyond what you can comfortably do. And they kind of live like that, you know, being more grown up than they really can be. It's a tremendous tension that's set up in the system when you do that. And then, you know, later on in life, um, they may be very embarrassed that stressful situations overwhelm them. Um, they, they feel like falling apart at times when they're like, you know, it wasn't that bad, but <clears throat> yet I want to go, you know, climb in bed and, and not come out for a couple of days. They're, they don't understand why they um, have these kind of collapses in adulthood. But the way I understand it is we set ourselves up for that in childhood when we set up that pattern of go above and beyond your natural place, your natural um, uh, capacity, really. Thank you. Capacity, yeah. natural development to be something wiser, older, yeah. more effective than you really can sustain. Yeah. And then when something, uh, you know, very demanding comes in there, you just don't have it. You don't mm -hmm. have the gas in the tank. Yeah. 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 So would you say that we don't have that gas in the tank because of the having to do that since childhood? It's almost like it's just it's just not there. It's dried up. It's would you say that? Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's that's the metaphor. Yeah. The metaphor yeah. That I would use because it when you get like that and you go into a collapse, you just feel like there's nothing there. Yeah. You, you feel like you can't do it. Right. Um, and I try to uh, and I hope everybody will will do this with themselves, but I try to reassure people that the feeling that they're having is what they experienced in childhood, that they're mm -hmm. kind of feeling like they have to be more adept, more capable than they really are. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. It's okay to not be that all the time. And that mm -hmm. everybody, you know, goes into these bad times and these collapses when things are too much for them, mm -hmm. you'll come back, but don't add, you know, insult to injury by then criticizing yourself for being quote weak or whatever. Yes. It's like, you're not weak, you're out of gas. Yeah. <laughs> so do something to take care of yourself 
and get some uh, time and some room to reconstitute so that you can meet the challenge. Yeah. A lot of times people don't take that resilient approach because they've been hurried along by an impatient parent mm-hmm. that wants them to, you know, get with it and solve it. Um, yeah. And so they push themselves too much. Mm. Yeah, right. This is such a great conversation. <laughs> That's so great. So you talked about something that I, I made a little note about because I, I thought it was interesting about how as children, we can come out two ways uh, when we've been raised by emotionally immature parents. You said something about the internalizer and the externalizer. Can you briefly just explain what you mean by those two? Yeah, um, those terms were my effort to explain, or maybe I should say describe, uh, two reactions to having emotionally immature parents. Now, the people that show up in a therapist's office are likely to be the internalizer types. Um, These are the people who are listening to podcasts, who are reading books, or going to therapy, talking to their friends. They're trying to figure it out. Um, The internalizer type has this capacity, and they seem to have it from a very young age, this capacity to take things in, to to, um, pay attention and try to make sense out of stuff. Mm -hmm. They like to learn. They like to process stuff. And by taking it in and thinking about it, they're trying to um, understand what's going on uh, about other people, about themselves, about the nature of life, (laughs) about the nature of the world. They're just curious, you know, Mm -hmm. and they have this sense that it can be figured out that, you know, things do make sense. And when they, they get an answer, oh my gosh, they're so excited, you know, because it's like they're trying to figure out that unified field theory of Einstein's, you know, like, like what is it that makes the world tick? What is it that makes people tick? So they're like that, the internalizers. Um, unfortunately, that same characteristic means that they will inappropriately blame themselves when things go wrong sometimes Mm -hmm. because they tend to take it in and work on it. So one of the things that we have to do in therapy with these uh, people is we have to help them realize that a lot of the things they've experienced weren't their fault and that it really is a question of them understanding why the other person behaved this way instead of taking responsibility for something that wasn't theirs at all. Mm-hmm. It was this other person's personality issues. Now the externalizer um, who can very easily be a, a sibling <laughs> of the internalizer, the externalizer doesn't deal with stress by thinking about things or processing things. The externalizer deals with stress by acting out. They see the world in terms of externals, like this thing happened to me. And so I did this thing. Um, This person uh, treated me this way. So I felt this way. So I did this thing. 
it's always externalized and it's, and they don't do the self-reflection that would allow them to see what part they're playing in their own troubles. Um, everything is somebody else's fault. Somebody else is to blame. I mean, sometimes this, this, <laughs> this is, attains ridiculous proportions. I mean, you can't believe what, what they're denying or what they're, how they're blaming other people for something that is so clearly, you know, their own fault, but they just never see it. Mm -hmm. And it appears to them like, you know, stuff is falling out of the sky on their heads and they have no idea why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, they have such bad luck. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm laughing because that was something I heard. I have such bad luck. Yeah. And people, yes. are so, people are so mean to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, maybe we can talk a little bit about um, what we all want to know. So let's say we have these relationships. We've had those relationships as children. We have them now as an adult and we just are tired and we want to know how we can start to feel better about ourselves, to have more agency, and also how we can manage this relationship in a way that feels healthier. Yeah. And I like that word manage because I think that's the right attitude. Um, at an emotional level, a lot of times what people want is they want a closer relationship with the person. Um, but what I usually present as an alternative to that is that you can manage your interactions with them in ways that are less frustrating to you and more conducive <clears throat> to you getting what you want. Um, for instance, if you have something that you want to get across, like maybe it might be when I come to visit, I'm going to stay at a hotel instead of staying at the family house. And you know that this is going to cause an uproar with your mom or with your dad. And so you're afraid to do it. You're afraid to set that boundary or make that request but you decide to go ahead and do it anyway, instead of it being about, oh my gosh, how am I going to, to tell my mom this so that she doesn't get upset? That can't be your goal because whether your mom or dad is upset with your boundary is not something that you have any control over naturally, right? right. Um, and if you make that your goal, you're not going to know what to do next when they do what they do, which is to say, what do you mean you're not staying with us? You always stay with us. Family stays together. This is Thanksgiving, so forth. So what we do is we look at what is the specific outcome that you want? Well, I want to end up in a hotel room on Thanksgiving night after the meal. Okay, that's what we're headed for. And then everything becomes about managing the interaction to that outcome. It may be that you have to go through several iterations of mom being upset or dad telling you to stop making mom sad or this is ridiculous or whatever. And you may have to realize that that's going to be the way it is for a while so that you just keep 
respectfully repeating what you want to do and what you're going to do. And you're nice about it. I mean, most, most people, especially internalizers, do not want to be these harsh, mm -hmm. assertive, um, you know, impervious uh, warriors going in to put people in their place. I mean, that is not at all comfortable for an internalizer type to do. They want to get along with people. They don't want to hurt people's feelings. So you can do this all in the most polite, mm -hmm. um, nicest way that you feel totally comfortable with, yeah. as long as it's moving you toward that outcome, that specific outcome that you want on this particular issue. So that's managing toward resolution. It's not making the relationship closer or getting mom to feel better about it. It's letting mom have her reactions and feelings, but consi con consistently staying with what it is that you want to get from that interaction. So <clears throat> as you can tell, very time consuming, very energy consuming, but that's the nature of what happens when you tell an emotionally immature person that they can't have what they want. It's, it's much like that's what happens when you tell a two-year-old or a four-year-old that they can't have what they want. It's like, why can't I? You're the meanest <laughs> ever. I'm going to throw a tantrum. <laughs> yeah, I'm really hearing similarities there. <laughs> it's like, you're going to suffer if you make me do something I don't want to do or you don't give me what I want. So you're prepared for that. You know they're going to do that, but it doesn't mean that you're going to end up in your childhood bedroom on Thanksgiving night if that's not your goal. Mm -hmm. So really thinking about what is it that, that you want and sort of preparing preparing for the conversation. Would you How, how would that look like? Like in your mind preparing? Like rehearsing yeah. it? Yeah, um, you certainly do it in your mind. Um, a lot of people like to write it out in journaling. Mm -hmm. like, okay, let's just let's just start. And and everybody realize that you're extremely anxious when you do this. Okay, just that goes with the territory. But you write down what you want to say. You feel your anxiety. You imagine what they're going to say back. You feel your anxiety, and then you think. You give yourself time to think. Like okay, so. If she said, that's ridiculous. I can't believe you just said that to me. All right, now I feel my anxiety. I feel how uh, bad I feel. Okay, and and what would I say back? Hmm, what would I say back? Mm -hmm. So you're, you give yourself time to come up with an answer. One of the things that emotionally mature people do that's so disconcerting is they will rush you um, you know, like insist on an answer right away or get in your face with one of their, uh, you know, like that's ridiculous or whatever. And you're put on your back foot and you feel like you have to respond right away, but you don't. At that very moment, you can say, I have to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. <laughs> and you can go give yourself a break. Think of what you want to say and return. You never have to feel rushed. That's one of the things that makes people feel the most insecure in these interchanges. So when you um, 
uh, are practicing it, you can do it in your own mind. You can do it in journaling. You can get a friend to role play. I role play a lot um, with my clients about um, what they would say. And we do it just like that. You know, I'll pretend to be the parent and I'll say one of those sort of challenging things and they'll go, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and I'll say, okay, let's just stop. You have all the time in the world to think of what you want to say. Just pause it right there. Take a breath. Now let's think about what you might like to say to that. They have never, I guarantee you, done that in their life. No. They have felt like they had to quickly come back with some shattering yeah. statement that was going to, you know, somehow put the person in their place and they were going to show them who's boss or it doesn't, it doesn't work for them because they're not the bulldozer type of person that that comes naturally mm. to. So you have to use your own personality style when you're setting these limits with them. I really like the idea of the, of the journaling practice because you are giving yourself that time mm -hmm. and that feels like you can have a little bit of control in that because you're practicing, you're preparing for what may happen. Um, yeah, I, I, I love that. That's really, really nice and really, really helpful. Um, so, I mean, you know, honestly, I could keep you here for another five hours, but I won't. But maybe I'll have you back if you would like to. I so appreciated this conversation so much. And I would recommend that people listen to it a couple of times. <laughs> I know I will. Um, is there anything... Lindsay, you'd like to say before we come to a close, either about what we talked about or if you want to add anything else? Um, I just want people to realize that if there's something that they're feeling bad about or something that um, is, is bothering them in the relationship that they have with an emotionally immature person, I want them to realize that this can be understood in the context of the kind of dynamics that go on between emotionally immature people and other people. And to please keep that in mind and not fall into the kind of brainwashed conditioning that happens that makes people very self-critical and very down on themselves when they don't please other people or when other people don't agree with them. Okay, that self-criticism can come in in such a uh, <clears throat> debilitating way. And it's important for us to realize that, you know, whatever it is that we have done in our attempt to deal with emotionally immature people is the best we could have done. And we have the opportunity now as adults to treat ourselves with sympathy and empathy and respect and encouragement, okay? Mm -hmm. We don't have to reflect the voices, the negative voices of those emotionally immature people who put us down so that they could feel more important. And if, if anybody can get that idea that the self-criticism is not something that's gonna make you a better person, it's just a repeat of what they probably went through in childhood, you know, that, that would be, that would be the greatest um, outcome that I could imagine for readers of the book. 
That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for your compassionate heart. Um, we take it in, we feel it. It's wonderful. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it, Monique.